0: Amen. Thanks so much, and thank you guys for the privilege of allowing me to be with you for this next little uh, period of time, today, tonight, tomorrow. I'm very much looking forward to our time together. We're going to be looking at the book of Hebrews, kind of flying over at a high level to see what God has to say. Having been here last night and worshiping with you, learning with you, uh, watching a powerful altar call, I can let you know in advance that I'm just gonna be building on what DJ was talking about as we hone in on what it means to be singularly focused on the Lord Jesus. Before we go there, uh, it's always important to know a little bit about the person who's sharing with you. So I wanna give you a little bit of my own story. That's my wife, Donna, and my dog, Silver Fur. We have been married 42 years. We just celebrated our 42nd wedding anniversary uh, last month, actually. So uh, we're very grateful. And our honeymoon was at Hume Lake. I grew up in Fresno, got married in Fresno, and this was the closest clean air. So we came up here and (laughs) it was awesome uh, 42 years ago. So it's always good to be back at Hume Lake. Uh, This is the future of the Dahlstrom family. My, from left to right, my son-in-law and oldest daughter right there, uh, and then my youngest daughter and her husband, and then my son Noah and, uh, His wife, and I get a little bit emotional right now because you see that they have one uh, daughter there. A week ago tomorrow, they gave birth to their second child, a little girl. And uh, so we got the news, you know, Sunday afternoon. And then we heard, oh, we're moving from the birth center to the hospital in Wenatchee, uh, Washington, a couple hours from Seattle. And then we got the news at 1 a.m., They don't know if she's gonna make it. They're airlifting the baby to Seattle Children's Hospital. So we were, this has been a tough week for me. We've been in Seattle ministering my son and daughter-in-law. This little girl named Zisu is still in neonatal intensive care, but was uh, taken off of a ventilator and then uh, taken off of, just today, praise the Lord, taken off of oxygen, she's breathing our air for the first time on her own. So we can thank God for that. And uh, it's been a powerful moment uh, for my son and daughter to see the body of Christ in action, and for us as well, and to see God as our healer, as we just sang. So that's, that's our uh, family, right? And uh, we're gonna be talking, about faith in the midst of challenges in our time together. So I'm gonna read from James four, and then we're gonna pray. And never has the truth of James four verses 13 to 15 been more real than it is right now. Listen to this. This is James. Come now you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a city and town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet, and I've underlined this in my Bible in 2019, 2020, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Uh, Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for these men. Thank you for this time that uh, you've given us together. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. I pray that we would receive all that you have to say to us And particularly, Father, I pray for these men that their responsive hearts would allow the indwelling Christ to have free reign in their lives in order to transform marriages and families would would shine as light uh, scattered throughout California. And I believe that that will result in fruit and hope and transformation. And toward this end, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, when COVID hit, in March of uh, 2020, I, was, I happened to be speaking in Switzerland and there was a couple in the front row and we're going around introducing ourselves and this couple is coughing like crazy. And they're like this, we're from Italy and our town was just closed, we can't go home. They've, they've shut the doors of the town. Turns out they had COVID and uh, by the end of that week, I had to go to Austria and do some teaching. By the end of the week, I had to cough, I had no uh, sense of smell, I didn't know what was going on. Then in Austria, uh, as COVID is now just exploding, there's no more flights from the continent of Europe back to the States, my flight is canceled, I called Lufthansa Airlines, listen to this, this is what they say, uh, we, please be patient, we will answer your call, you've heard those robots, we will answer your call in 116 hours. <laughs> Don't you love that? Just wait on hold for 116 hours and we'll answer your call. So I gotta hang up the phone and okay, I gotta get a, a flight, I gotta rebook now out of London and I got a flight out of London, but to get to the flight in London I had to go to Zurich and by the time I was finished speaking, the, the railroad from Austria to Switzerland was closed and I couldn't get into Zurich so I had to hitch a ride with a guest at the conference that I was speaking. And then I got my flight from Zurich to London, London to Seattle, and as soon as I get home, there's a message waiting for me on my phone uh, from the person with whom I traveled for seven hours in a car from Austria to Switzerland saying, I've got COVID, take care of yourself, good luck, right? And so that began for us this entire experience of the last 19 months that all of us have seen, like the total deconstruction of life as we knew it, right? And not only that, but it's been a very difficult time because that deconstruction has led to job loss, life loss, family separation, new ways of doing church, and then toss into the middle of all that a presidential election, the moral failings of Christian leaders, deep divisions within the church and culture over masks and vaccines and who won the election, all of which led to some family splits and church splits, and at least in my state, church closures. And I can tell you personally, some very discouraged pastors who quit the ministry. An exodus on top of this of many of Gen Z young adults from the church who are looking at the infighting and saying, I'm done with this, and I haven't even mentioned George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, mass shootings, Afghanistan. The point in all of this, though, isn't where you stand on any particular issue. The point is that our culture is dividing over issue after issue after issue. That's what cultures do. But the tragedy of the last 18 months is that the divisions within the culture have bled into the church and we now are house divided. And this in spite of what Jesus prayed in John 17, verses 20 and 21, which I read now. I do not ask on the behalf of these disciples sitting here alone, but for those who believe in me through their word. That's us. Jesus is praying for us. What's his last prayer before the cross? I pray that they may all be one even as you father are in me and I in you that they may be in us so that the world may believe. Where's our credibility? Not in our uniformity of thought but in our unity. We don't agree on everything. We like the Braves. We like the Dodgers. We like the Seahawks. We like the Rams. We like the left. We like the right. We like the mask. We like the freedom. But we agree on this, Jesus is Lord, amen? Amen. And that should be enough, but isn't. (laughs) And that's why the book of Hebrews is very important for us, today and tomorrow. I've titled this Faith in the Midst, because the author who wrote the book of Hebrews was writing to a group of new Christians who found themselves in the midst of several challenges that mirror the challenges in which we find ourselves today. The challenge of displacement and suffering, competing religious narratives, and the subtle seduction of stagnation. Displacement and suffering means this. These people, when the book of Hebrews was written, they'd come to Christ, and rather than life getting easier as a result of coming to Christ, lo and behold, life got harder for them. Some, by virtue of their faith, uh, were now in divided families, and families weren't getting along, imagine that. Some, by virtue of their faith, Uh, lost their businesses. They were blacklisted. Some went to jail. (laughs) So God loves me, has a wonderful plan for my life, but hello, where is it? Because following Jesus is no picnic. And so now they're wondering, did I make the right choice? And some are slowly, uh, slowly drifting back into their previous ways. Displacement and suffering. Second, competing religious narratives. In other words, uh, Jesus and faith in Christ was dropped into this kind of cultural Petri dish, and what grew were some libertarians, which were basically saying this, look, all we need is faith in Christ, we don't need, you know, personal transformation. And then there were traditional Jews who rejected Jesus as Messiah, and then there were Judaizers. These were Jews who'd become Christ followers, but taught that you needed to keep the old covenant law to be saved, and then there were legalists on top of that. And so within the people who say, yes, we follow Christ, not everyone agreed on what that meant. And so you had competing religious narratives, just like today. And then, of course, the subtle seduction of stagnation, because the distortion of real faith in Christ had arisen... And, and so what happened is people then would just kind of withdraw into kind of these echo chambers, all the libertarians worshiping together, all the Judaizers worshiping together, all the legalists worshiping together, and in my echo chamber, I'm perfectly happy because I'm with people who look like me, think like me, vote like me exactly. And then those people over there who look different, vote different, think slightly different, but also claim Jesus as Lord, listen, they become the enemy. Yeah. No, no, that has to stop. Come on. So this is what we're about in our time here together this morning. Because we have displacement and suffering as well. We do. There's a man in our church uh, whose dad died alone because he died in a rest home of COVID and no one could see him. There are families in our church that no longer enjoy Thanksgiving together, not that they can't in 2021, but that they don't, that they don't now don't want to (laughs) because they've had so many arguments over politics and masks that they no longer enjoy being together. That's displacement and suffering. Competing religious narratives. There's a Jesus of the left that's about economic equity and racial justice and environmental stewardship and silent on the matter of sexual ethics and, and uh, protecting life in the womb. And then there's a Jesus on the right that rightly calls people to covenant relationship and families and addresses sexual ethic, but is sometimes blind to systemic sins of colonialism and, ra- uh, and, and racism. And there's a libertarian Jesus that says, just believe and that's enough. The Jesus that Dietrich Bonhoeffer called uh, the Jesus of cheap grace. There's a legalistic Jesus that creates fear and anxiety because I never know, have I prayed enough? Have I read enough? Have I given enough? Have I served enough? Have I done enough? My aunt died at 93 years old and called me on the phone because she said, Richard, I'm afraid that I'm going to go to hell when I die. And I said to her, what have you done for Jesus? And she said, I I, I led the church choir for 60 years. Every Saturday, I mowed the church lawn. I, I taught Sunday school. I taught kids club on Tuesdays. I said, you're right. Aunt Mary, you haven't done enough. And she said, I'm sorry, I called you. And I said to her, you haven't done enough because you could never do enough. Why? Because the gospel, what makes it good news is we don't earn it, we receive it. But there's a a gospel afoot that that creates anxiety. So unless we name these challenges of displacement and suffering, competing religious narratives, and and the deception of stagnation, uh, we're gonna drift along and ultimately fail to shine as light and live the life for which we're created. So how does the author address these things? Well, there's four main problems. This morning, we talk about this. We've lost our capacity to maintain Christ as the, with a definite article reference point. It's, it's now become Christ plus rather than Christ alone. We're going to talk about that this morning. Tonight, we're going to talk about this, the loss of our identity in Christ, which leads to compromise. And then tomorrow morning, I want to close with this our failure to mature into rest, and our failure to finish the race, right? Which uh, often leads to burnout and a total misrepresentation of the gospel. So let's begin here with this loss of centrality in Christ. And that's the last time I'm gonna use this clicker. So I'm gonna put it away. Here's your outline for the morning. Jesus is the full revelation of God. Jesus is the final revelation of God. And for this reason, We we need a singular, intentional, passionate focus on Christ. Let's begin by looking at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Here we go. Hebrews 1. So, I hope you have a Bible. If you don't, buy one. (laughs) And listen as I read. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways, in these last days... Has spoken to us in his son, whom we appointed as heir of all things, and through whom he made the world. And he, Christ, is the radiance of his God's glory. And this is the key: the exact representation of God's nature. So this we're gonna look at here. God, first of all, just an observation: the text says this: God spoke to the prophets in many portions in many ways. So in the the Old Testament, you can see it, Noah built an ark, but only after the flood was meat-eating sanctioned. Everyone was vegetarian until the flood happened. Abraham left home, and and he learned that any male who would be devoted to God would need to be circumcised. And he learned that if God asks you to kill your son, you you do it because you believe God's going to raise him from the dead. Jacob had four wives, was a liar and a thief, but is still at the forefront as the standard-bearer of what it means to be God's chosen people. (laughs) Moses received the law, and in that law he learned that you can't wear wool and linen at the same time. (laughs) And and, and that sanctuary cities are for people who accidentally kill someone and run to that city for protection. Joshua received the command to go to the land and kill every living thing. And by the time you get to Jesus, things sound different. Jesus said it. You've heard it said, (laughs) love your friends, hate your enemies. But I say to you, says Jesus, love your enemies, turn the other cheek, go the second mile. The early church consisting mostly of converts from Judaism decided that Gentiles could become Christ followers, but only if they refrained from eating meat sacrificed to idols. And then by the time you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 8... Eating meat sacrificed to idols is viewed as no big deal unless it leads someone to sin. In the Old Testament, you had clean and unclean meat. And then God speaks to Peter in this dream in Acts chapter 10. And Peter's on the top of a, a, he's on a rooftop. He's taking an afternoon nap. And this, this blanket comes down from the sky in his dream. And it's filled with, quote, unquote, unclean meat, which, by the way, is the good stuff. Bacon, oysters, shrimp. Down it comes. What does God say? Arise, kill, eat. And what does Peter say? No, this is my paraphrase, no way, I follow the Bible. (laughs) And then what does God say? I wrote the Bible, it's a new chapter, right? (laughs) And so the point of this little flyover of the Bible is to show you that when you say hey, I just follow the Bible, your critic has every right to say, oh, yeah, sure, fine, but which parts? (laughs) Because it's not always saying the same thing. Genocide is no longer okay. Running the sanctuary cities because you killed someone is no longer okay. Wearing silk and wool at the same time is okay. And eating bacon is the best thing ever, right? (laughs) So the question on the table then is this, what does it mean to love God, to follow God, to live the life for which we're created? And the answer must be this. Jesus alone is the, with an all caps, definite article, 88-point font, the reference point, nothing else. You're made in God's image. You're called to represent God's heart through your words, your actions, your priorities. That, after all, is what it means to be fully human, And part of what makes the gospel good news is that there is someone who's gone before us and lived as a human from the first breath to the last as the full expression of God. And that person's name is Jesus. In essence, Jesus is a reference point for what it means to be fully human. So if I wanna know what it means to live the Christian life, yes, I need to understand the whole Bible, I I get that. But my reference point, like the sniff test of my life is this. Does this look like Jesus? And I got to tell you, we've lost this in in evangelical culture because it's often become kind of trendy and popular and platform building to be sarcastic and cynical and angry and incite fear and incite division. None of that is the heart of Jesus. None of it is the heart of Jesus. And so we have to understand here, the sniff test for leadership must be this. Does this person represent in their words, in their actions, the humility, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, long-suffering, and wisdom of Jesus? Because if not, it's not Jesus. And if it's not Jesus, it's not Christianity. That's what we have to stand on. So this person, Jesus, becomes our single reference point. And if Jesus is my reference point, uh, guess what? Black Lives Matter is not my reference point. Critical race theory is not my reference point. And yet, I will take the lives of black people seriously because Jesus, as my reference point, was continually crossing social divides and breaking down dividing walls. I will will, uh, confess collective systemic sin because Jesus calls me to do so as a way of breaking down dividing walls. And Jesus calls me to love my neighbor on the left just as fully as he calls me to love my neighbor on the right. So Black Lives Matter is not my reference point. Critical Race Theory is not my uh, reference point. The Republican Party is not my reference point. Capitalism is not my reference point. Nationalism is not my reference point. I, I have one reference point, Christ. And this means our version of Christianity, our particular version, cannot be our reference point. And the reason I say that is because we have to understand that the light of Christ has shown and is shining across the centuries, across denominations, East, West, Catholic, Protestant, conservative, evangelical, Pentecostal, mainline, and in all those same places, the light has at times given way to darkness so that we begin to understand, oh, as we look at our history, we see colonialism in Jesus' name, slavery in Jesus' name, anti-Semitism in Jesus' name, sexual anarchy in Jesus' name, tribalism, judgmentalism, petty exclusion, all in Jesus' name. No! There's a better way, friends. One reference point, Jesus. Paul says it this way, 2 Corinthians 11.3. Writing the Corinthian church, he says, I'm concerned that your minds are being led astray from the simplicity and purity of, of devotion to Christ. In other words, watch this. Christ plus nothing. And the beauty of Christ plus nothing is Christ is incredibly malleable for the time and culture and season. I'm privileged to travel quite a bit as part of my ministry. And so I'll never forget being in Rwanda and uh, going to a, a meeting of church elders and they served Fanta orange drink. Do you know it? Yeah. You heard of Fanta? Oh, yeah. yeah, so, when in Rwanda, right? So, little Fanta, here we go, that's fine. And you know, I sat and I listened to stories about the genocide of 1996 and, 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 and the power of the, of, the, of the reconciling power of Jesus. I, mean, it, I, I, can't, I can't even begin to tell you How important that conversation was for me to receive from a culture vastly different than my own, something that would shine a light on a blind spot in my own heart. Do you see? And in particular, what what needed shining for me was the power of forgiveness. I was holding something against someone, and then there was this gal, Monique, and she She got up and she shared her story. She said, uh, she's a Tutsi, they were the predominant victimized group at the hands of the Hutus. Uh, She said, I was hiding in the forest, some Hutus came uh, and they made a deal with me. Four men, they would give me food and not kill me in exchange for sex. So she was gang raped daily by these four men for about six months. And then as the tide was turning, and became clear that the genocide was gonna end. They came, they slashed her and beat her and left her to die. But she didn't die. <laughs> so she, uh, she shares her story, that was 1996. She said, so in, by 2001, she said, five years after the genocide, she said, uh, God had miraculously spared me. I'd, I'd come to real faith in Christ. I'll explain what I mean by real faith later. But I'd come to real faith in Christ. And uh, God convicted me I need to go and forgive the men who had tormented me. Why? Because of exactly what DJ said last night. What did he say? Jesus said on the cross? He didn't say, uh, Father, as soon as they confess their sins, would you forgive them? Listen. Real forgiveness, the forgiveness of Jesus is preemptive and unconditional. Do you get this? Wow, we got to hear that. So she could not, she could only find one of the guys, but she went to this guy five years later, knocks on his door, (laughs) and uh, he sees her. It's like he sees a ghost, and she says. I'm here for uh, several reasons. First of all, I'm here to tell you uh, that uh, I am HIV-positive, so you should get tested for AIDS. My husband's already died of AIDS. Second, I'm here to tell you that I came to Jesus subsequent to 1996. Third, I came to tell you that Jesus has forgiven me of so much that he's now called me to be an instrument of forgiveness in the lives of others. And I'm here to tell you I forgive you. I don't hold anything against you for what you did. You are forgiven. And then, he, he, uh, then she said, uh, do you have anything to say? And he, this is what he said, I wanna live that way. And she led him to Christ. Wow. 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 Now, listen, I leave Rwanda I go to Germany, I grew grew up in Central Valley. My dad taught me, no Christians drink alcohol. That's what he taught me. I mean, I knew it, right? And so here I am in Germany and uh, I'm teaching at a Bible school and this student says, hey, spend the weekend with my family, blah, blah, blah. So I go, I I am in the black forest and there's this big spread and so here's the student Uh, His sister, her husband, their little kids, his nieces, nephews, his parents, and his grandmother. His grandmother, who's in her 80s, and this is like 1993, right? So, um, I'm I'm at this party, and it's, you know, bratwurst and potato sausage and all the typical German stuff, and it's awesome hospitality. But everybody's drinking beer. Everybody's drinking beer. The student who had said in the thing, I will never drink beer on campus. Now he's drinking beer. And the parents are drinking beer. And, the, and the, who's drinking the most? The grandmother. Big, big things with foam, you know. Drink beer. And at the end of the night, we're there five hours talking. You know, the grandmother speaks not a word of English, but is sharing through translation. The grandmother invites me to her house. And then, so I'm sitting, and my, the student is translating, and she shows me this scrapbook that is her life story. Get this. Uh, she's born in, during World War I sometime, and her dad dies in the German army uh, in World War I. She marries in 1938, and immediately her husband is conscripted by Hitler <laughs> and shipped off to the Eastern Front. And then she lives in Dresden, if you know history. We bombed Dresden to the bottom. So she's showing me pictures of all this stuff. And the war ends, and when the wall goes up, she ends up settling on the, just on the west side of the, of, the, of the wall, and the east, all her relatives are on the east. And she's alone because she's, her husband is presumed dead. Somewhere in Russia. Uh, so then I said to her, uh, did you ever remarry? She said, I would never remarry. I'm a one-man woman. I prayed for my husband to come home. And as she turns the page, there's a picture of her husband coming home. Two years after the war, he finds her, knocking on the door, and they're, and they're reconciled. So then I said to her, it's like 1130 at night now, it's a long story. I said, how did you survive all that? And then she points to her Bible. And this was, she she does this. She goes, every day, every morning, on my knees, filled with the strength and joy of Jesus. Every day to this one. (laughs) 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 Yeah, right. Our little evangelical version, that's Christianity. No, it's not. It's an expression. It's a good expression. God uses it. And hello, it has blind spots. Just like the German church has blind spots. Just like the Rwandan church has blind spots. Just like the church in Nepal has blind spots. Just like, just like the Anglican church and the Catholic church and the Pentecostal church and my church and your church. Get over it. You're, you're, a, you're an imperfect expression of Jesus, and the only way you'll keep growing is to learn from those with whom you disagree. Amen. So this is why Jesus must be the reference point. I love that now no longer popular WWJD thing, because it becomes kind of a reminder that we have a reference point. Would Jesus lust for political power? By the way, he didn't. Would Jesus take up the sword? By the way, he didn't. Would Jesus seek to overthrow the Roman Empire? By the way, he didn't. He lived in the midst of the most corrupt regime of all the empires in in, uh, that early period of history. It was the most corrupt one. And and he lived right in the midst of it, not overthrowing it, but calling people to this. In the midst of greed and fear and cynicism and power grabbing and anxiety and name-calling and division, in the midst of that, Might there be a people marked by generosity and courage and hope and service and peace who love indiscriminately, who love lavishly, who reconcile, who serve without any conditions? Might there be such a people? And the answer is yes, Christians. That's God's intent. That's God's vision for the church. And if that's the goal, I got to tell you, we have much to repent of, much to repent of and a long way to go if we're to recover our life. And this is why in my city, many in Gen Z, people now in college are like this. I like your Jesus, but I'm done with your church, done. Why? Because you look just like the world. The world fights about masks, you fight about masks. The world fights about vaxes, you fight about vaxes. The world is obsessed with sexuality, you're obsessed with sexuality. Come on, show me something different. How could we live differently? Well, by making Jesus the reference point. Because when we do that, we come to discover that Jesus is the full and final revelation of God. Hebrews chapter 1 again, verse 3. B, second half of the verse. Hebrews 1, 3. It says this. Jesus is the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power, when he had made purification of sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Amen. Now, let me just uh, unpack that a little bit for you. There's some things to see here. Um, when he sat down, that's the symbol of the, com- that the work of God is completed. In other words, we're told that when, when Jesus sat down, every enemy, at that moment, every enemy is defeated. A couple of things flow from this. Number one, that means that you and I are able to operate and we're able to live our lives on a daily basis from a position of wholeness. When you look uh, through, through the Bible at various truths about your identity in Christ, it becomes clear that regardless how you feel about yourself at any given moment, however you feel about yourself, fine. You feel good some days, you feel bad some days. I get it, I'm there too. But regardless of what I think, or feel, I am already filled with nothing less than the life of God. If I'm in Christ, I'm completing Christ. If I'm in Christ, I'm adopted. If I'm in Christ, I have all things pertaining to life and godliness, 2 Peter 1. If I'm in Christ, I have the Holy Spirit, John chapter 15. If I'm in Christ, I have everything I need to live the Christian life because the only one capable of living the Christian life is Jesus, not me. But the good news, he lives in me. So I can then live, out from a place of confidence. And watch this. If I'm confident that God will never, ever leave me, which the Bible tells me, then, then my nature in Adam that is prone to run away in shame after failure, instead of running away in shame, I run toward God. Are you with me? I don't need to run away anymore. I can run toward God. Why? Because I will find in Christ... Open arms, Uh, you know, uh, it is baseball season and so I gotta tell you one baseball story. I I grew up in Fresno, played Little League, played Babe Ruth stuff in junior high and my theology on the Father of God was formed in a a baseball moment, right? Um, I was pitching one night for my Little League team, I must have been in about fifth grade or so, so say 11 years old and my dad is a school principal. He's gonna come pick me up, take me to the game, I'm gonna pitch. So I'm waiting, my dad's gonna pick me up, and I'm waiting and I'm warming up, right? So I've got my, u- I got my uniform on, I'm left-handed, I got my glove on, doing my thing, you know. I'm warming up in the house, because it's Fresno, right? That's all you need to know. So I'm warming up in the house, I kinda, I'm throwing the ball into the sofa, But right above the sofa, there's this big picture window, right? So then, Dad's five minutes late, and I'm getting a little nervous, throwing a little harder, and then I hear him pulling in the driveway. I hear him walking up the stairs. One last kind of Juan Marichal kick, you know. Two inches high shatters the window, shatters the window. The the ball is still spinning in the glass as my dad walks through the door. Like I, I, you can't lie your way out of this, right? I don't know what happened, a a baseball, who knew? So I, like I knew immediately, life as I knew it was over forever, right? It's like the shame kicks in, right? So I run into, I run into my bedroom, close the door, lock the door, I'm in tears, I'm on my pillow, here's my dad, open the door, and he sounds really mad. I go, no, go away, I know, I'm grounded until 18, whatever. Open the door, and then I, I wouldn't open it, I refused. He picks the lock, opens the door, get up, get out. you know, and then he says, what are we doing? You know that we have few rules in this house, one, Never throw the baseball in, in, the, in the house, right? And I go, you were late. That's the blame game of Genesis 3, right? That's in our nature. Blame and shame. It's what we do as men. We're so good at it. Anyway, I digress. Yeah, you, then this is what he says. You're going to have to pay for it. Then I really start crying. I go, I'm 11. I'm going to pay for it. He goes, I'm taking all the chores you do, and we're going to assign a monetary value to him. I we'll put a thing in the refrigerator, and he says, uh, when it's paid for, we'll tear it up, and you'll have learned your lesson. I said, okay. And he says, okay, let's go. I said, let's go. What do you mean? He says, you're pitching. Oh, I'm not pitching. I'm a failure. <laughs> come up here. Can you come up here? Just come on up here, come on up here, come on up. You're my son, you're my son now. This is what he does, this is what he does. Yeah, yeah. this is what he does. He puts his hands on me like this, I'll never forget it. He says, you're my son, you're not a failure. I love you, I'm for you, I'm proud of you, and you're gonna go pitch. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I wanna tell you, my theology about God as Father was shaped in that moment. Wow! Amen. Can I fail? Not can I. Will I? Yes. But the question isn't will I fail. The question is what will I do when I fail? And if I resort to blame and shame and hiding, I will never enjoy the journey of transformation God has for me. So the fact that Jesus said on the cross, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. And then he said his last words, it is finished. That means this, God is not mad at you ever. Never run from God, always run to God. And by the way, if you're going to run to God, God shows up. In the body of Christ. I mean, this is the physical presence of Jesus. That's why the little bit I heard of the seminar in here was this, you don't deal with addiction alone, you deal with it by going to those who will be what? For you, for you, for you. And then I might just say, it's high time that the church is then for everyone, for everyone. So that people can run into the church and know, I want to be free from this addiction. I want to be free from this shame. I want to be free from this greed. And know that they will find their open arms as a good father should be because that's who God is. And so we operate from a place of wholeness and we operate from a place of victory. It it says that Jesus sat down. And when he sat down and said, it is finished, that means that our calling now isn't to create a victory. The is already there. Our calling is to declare the victory and to bring the victory of Christ into every situation. And we can begin to do that, men, by living out from a place of confidence. And the confidence is this. As we continue to show up in our marriage, in our parenting, in our job responsibilities, in the many roles that all of us have, as we show up and we say this, we say this, Jesus, it's not my words, it's your words. It's not my perspective, it's your perspective. It's not my patience, it's your patience. It's not my wisdom, it's your wisdom. May your wisdom and patience and grace and mercy and courage flow through me. We have a confidence that Jesus will do a work and be in and through us who we could never be on our own. That's incredible to me, right? Now it's no longer about me and my inadequacies and my shortcomings and my insecurities, and it's a good thing because I got a list a mile long. I've had to learn this lesson as well. It's God's faithfulness. We show up and God does amazing things. I was speaking at a men's retreat. It's probably been 25 years ago now in, uh, in Montreal, in Canada. And so this is pre cell phone times. And my wife is driving me to the airport. And we get in an argument on the way to the airport. Now, I don't know if you guys ever get in arguments with your wives, but we get in an argument. And it was, a, like it was, a, it was one of the epic ones. I don't remember what it was about. I don't remember what it was about. But I remember. That we said some really terrible things. And the two things that I remember most powerfully were right as we're pulling up at SeaTac Airport in Seattle, we're pulling up to, you know, and you get out, and then she drives away, and that's it. She's driving away, no cell phones. And as I opened the door, she said this Don't hurry coming back. Now, you know, that really made me. I was hurt by that, of course. I'd said terrible things. She'd said bad things. I said, I love Canada. Maybe I'll just stay. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. <laughs> so oh, you're gonna try, you're gonna make me feel bad? Oh, I, I'll make you feel worse. How's that? That's what we do, yeah. So now, like I get in the airport and I'm like, oh, that was stupid. I go out, the car's gone. I'm gonna be on a flight before I can contact her. And, and then I'm not getting off the plane in Detroit, and then I got a chip shot to Montreal. And then I'm with the guys picking me up, the version of Jason here, right? And then I go to the thing, and then it's a, it, it's a retreat, you know, like this one, it's a men's retreat. And I'm in my room, and the guys are singing, and Jason comes in, hey Richard, uh, come out, uh, and join in with the singing, you want to join in with the singing? I go, no, I'm not into it like I'm filled with shame and guilt and inadequacy you know I'm not into it and he comes again he goes hey last song and then he comes in the room he says you're on you're on when this song ends get out here do I want to be there no am I a lousy speaker probably Am I, am I a terrible husband? Yes. Am I, am I a ter- because I'm a terrible husband, am I a terrible father? Well, that's downstream stuff, so probably I'm bad at that too. I guess I'm bad at everything. But I'm here. I'm stuck. I'll show up. And so I show up. I pray. As I prayed here, God, would you just use this imperfect vessel? And then the thing was uh, John 2, changing water into wine. And the conclusion... You know, wine is this symbol of blessing in the Bible. And I go, you know, many of you are just like that couple. The the wine's gone from your life. There's no joy. There's no fruitfulness. You're here. But it's a facade to hide the fact that underneath all the singing and all the reading, you're empty. I said, there's some of you here who are in exactly that state. And, of course, I'm preaching to myself at the moment and don't even know it. And then, you know, we close and I'm praying. And then when I open my eyes, there are groups of men in circles weeping and praying. And Jason comes up. I go, what just happened? He goes, well, there's a massive church split in Montreal about a year ago. And both men's groups signed up for this retreat and we decided not to tell them that the other group was gonna be there. Now, I don't know the camping wisdom of that, I don't know. But there they are, there's all these, there's all these guys that had massive fights, words spoken, and this is before vaccinations even. You know, and here they all are and now, he, and, and Jason's like this, he puts his arm around here, he says, Richard, look what God did. There's a revival happening right now. I, you know, I keep a diary. I went back and I wrote in my diary, God, you should never use me this way when my heart is like this. And I get into this little dialogue with God. If you, God, if you use me when my heart's, when I'm not good, if you use me when I'm not good, what motive do I have to be good? And then... I don't know if God, you know, I heard God speak basically, and God's laughing hysterically. Yeah. Richard, when have you ever been good? Yeah. Which is God's way of saying what? Relax, Richard. Not, are you with me? Yeah. Relax. It's not about you. Yeah, that's right. Did you pray enough? No. Give enough? No. Pure enough? No. But there's one in you. And to the extent that you can release your life and allow his life to find expression through you, that's enough. And God will show up every time. So that we bring to a close with this. For this reason, Hebrews 2, 1. For this reason, we must, watch this. We must pay much closer attention to the reference point, lest... We drift away, man, I love that language. Much closer attention to Jesus, because the truth is not a book, the truth is a person. The book points to the person, but in John 5, 39, Jesus himself said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's these scriptures that point to me, and yet though you know the text, Though you know the doctrine, though you know apologetics, though you can defend the resurrection, though you can argue about sexuality, you're unwilling to come to me that you might have life. Don't become a textual expert, become a lover of Jesus, because it's Jesus who's the reference point, not the text alone. Everything always comes back to Christ as the reference point. And then the author here says, much closer attention, lest what happens? Love it. Passive language. We drift away. In other words, very few people are like this. You know what? I'm done with Christianity. I'm going to give God the finger and go do my own thing. That doesn't happen often. I can tell you as a pastor, it doesn't happen often. What happens often is we drift. Because you know what you have to do to drift? Nothing. You just drift. I was fishing off the coast of British Columbia one time. And so we, we go out. We're in the Gulf Islands up there, if you know it and uh, we, then we cut the motor and we're drift fishing. And my reference point, I'd looked at this island, this little island, and then I'm paying attention to my line. 10 minutes later, I look up and I'm a mile and a half, we're a mile and a half from that island. Because the, 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 the force of the tide was so, was so powerful, we just drifted away. Romans 12, don't be conformed to, to this world. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Listen, the, the current in this illustration is our culture. Cultures divide, it's what they do. Politicians vilify the other side, it's what they do all the time. I get it. Yeah, economic systems vie to be the best economic system, that's what they do. Environmentalists argue against against free market capitalists, that's what they do. BLM people argue with anti-BLM people, that's what, I mean, that's, that's our world, great. Don't go there. That's not your calling. Your calling is in the midst of that sewage to be light and hope. There's a homeless ministry uh, that we partner with quite closely in our church in Seattle. We're in this dividing line in Seattle, our church, between the multi-million dollar homes around uh, Woodland Park, which is kind of the Central Park of Seattle, right? And then, and that's just to the south of our church, and just to the north is the highest intensity of arrests uh, for drug dealing and prostitution. All of that, wealth and depravity, is all within a quarter of a mile of our church. So we partnered with this group called The Commons, and it's a ministry, and outreach to people living on the streets. You can get a mailing, you know, a mailing address, P.O. Box, there's job training, there's addiction recovery, there's different things. And then the the CEO comes to me last February and says, hey, uh, Richard, uh, the owner's selling the building, we could get kicked out. And so, would you pray about that? And, you know, we've done stuff at Easter every year where we encourage people to live simply from Easter to Pentecost. So 50 days, 50 days ride your bike to work instead of paying for parking, or make your own coffee rather than paying six bucks at Starbucks or whatever, right? And so I live simply and then we'll take an offering at the end. And, we'll, and I said, we're, let's do that for you. And we're, Our goal, Church of 3000 our goal was $250,000. This is a great ministry, man. Uh, there was a guy walking down the street a couple months ago uh, wielding a big butcher knife right down the middle of the street the police rather than confronting the guy they called the commons and they said hey would you come ride with us we gotta, we gotta de-escalate this situation and so someone from the commons got in the police car and the, when the police arrived she got out and the guy with the knife said oh Helen good to see you and, and, and dropped the knife oh, wow. and said, I, yeah, I guess I need to go and be with the police. It could have been a disaster, right? Person of color. Helen, good to see you. That's how, that's how good they are. Wow. Well, so uh, they needed, they needed to buy their building and they said, there's somebody that's gonna offer us a $2 million grant if, we can get two million dollars. And there's another party that's gonna offer us a million dollar grant if we can get a million dollars. So I know you're praying for $200,000, Richard, from your church, 250. But let's just see what happens. Maybe God will do a miracle. So we take our offering, $989,000. And then a guy comes up at the end of the service, he goes, $11,000 check, here you go. Let's make it a cool million. That million gives them another million. That two million gives them two more million. They now own the building. Isn't that awesome. Wow. And when here's why I share the story. Here's why I share the story. I, I said to our congregants, look, we took this offer. It's a million dollars. We didn't all vote the same. I know that. This is Seattle. Of course we didn't all vote the same. We didn't all vote the same. We don't all have the same view of vaccinations. We don't all have the same view of masks. We don't have the same view of January 6th or Trump or the left or the right or BLM. We're a diverse community. Here's the one thing, the one thing we share in common. We all passionately love Jesus and desire Jesus to reign in our city. Shouldn't that be enough? Amen? Amen. 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 May it be so.